Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net. All right. I, I thought I'd, I'd start with a story. Maybe some of you have heard this story already. It's worth telling again. Um, and it also brings into the room a very powerful practitioner of gift culture, Nipun Mehta. So I heard it. He, he told this story in a group I was in. He was traveling in India with his wife, and they were traveling as pilgrims, and they decided to live on less than a dollar a day, just as in solidarity with many people in India. And it became very quickly apparent that you cannot actually live on less than a dollar a day if you're meeting all of your needs with money. It's impossible. So they had to rely on the generosity of strangers as they were traveling. And some days they would receive generosity, and some days maybe not as much, and they would, they would be hungry some days. And on one of those days that they hadn't really eaten anything and they didn't have enough money, they were approached by a, a, a laborer, just a normal day laborer, who said, I see you're dressed as pilgrims. Are you hungry? And they said, yes, we are. And he said, well, I'd like to invite you to my home for dinner. You could even stay the night if you want to. But I must warn you, it's not luxury accommodations. And Nipun said, we're not picky. Whatever you have, we will welcome it. Thank you so much. They went to his house, and indeed, it was not luxury accommodations. This man was maybe among the poorest of the poor. Uh, lived with his wife in this, in this shack with no appliances because there was no electricity, no running water, no furniture almost nothing. And Nipun felt maybe a twinge of guilt. Here I'm going to accept food from someone who's so poor. And I could actually take out my credit card and go to a hotel. Anything. And the man, the host, whispered something to his wife, and his wife went out and came back with food. And at that moment, Nipun said, he realized that these people were so poor that they did not even have food. And they had to borrow food to feed their guests. And the host said, in our belief, the guest is God. God has crossed our threshold. Please make yourself at home. And they served the food, and there wasn't that much of it. It was dal, highly spiced, because if there's not much of it, and it's highly spiced, it satisfies your hunger a little bit better. Um, and there was even a dessert, this rice pudding stuff. What's that called? Here, yeah. Right, there was that too. And Nipun said, he said, I'm quoting his exact words, he said, in my greed, I went for that first because I have a sweet tooth. Nipun is the least greedy person I know, but anyway, that's what he said. And then he went for it. Uh, and then he, when he tasted it, he realized that, of course, these people are so poor, they have no sugar. So it wasn't sweet. And his host saw the disappointment on his face, whispered something to his wife, and the wife went and came back with sugar. 
to sweeten the dessert. And yeah, they, so they ate there and they stayed there the night. Nipu knew that he couldn't refuse this gift, even though it came from somebody who was so poor that they had to borrow food. And when I heard the story, how is it that this person, that this couple, was able to be so generous? What do they know? Because it's not that they're better people. It's not that they are more saintly. It's not that they meditated a lot more or something like that. It's that they know something that almost nobody in my culture knows. They know something. And if everybody knew that thing, everybody would be as wealthy as they are. Because real wealth is not how much you have. Real wealth is the freedom to be generous, feeling free to be generous. And so I thought about what they know that we don't know. And there are some clues, two clues in the story. One clue is that they went to their neighbor to borrow food, which means that they live in a world where people take care of each other. And you're never... Your, 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 the whole community's wealth is your wealth, in a sense. And the second thing was that phrase, God has crossed our threshold. They live in a world that's alive everywhere. Populated by gods. But I'm going to turn to Orlin with that question. What do they know? Oh, the other thing I thought is, what would the world be like if all of the millionaires and billionaires felt so rich that they could give their entire net worth without fear? The world would be totally different. That's the question I'll, I'll put in there for Orland. What do they know? <laughs> Appreciate your sharing this story to bring our friend Lupun into the community here. Someone like that family knows the source. Knows the source. Now, what source of what? And often we think source being something or some process beyond me, beyond my time. And that could be true as well. But the source exists within the human will. If I'm willing, if I can make myself willing, I can become the source. Because that is what the source wants of us. Willingness. If I withhold, the source dies. Or becomes diminished. If I will, the source becomes abundant. And it moves from invisibility to visibility. From spirit to mind. And if we're really, 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 really willing, we will create out of nothing the way the source does. Matter comes from nothing. Light molds itself through a three-dimensional vertex 
into matter, and matter becomes a storage reservoir of life, free energy. So abundance becomes something for the moment that we could acknowledge the sacredness of that thing and bring into our inner life the sacred that is in the thing. The thing itself is a transmitter of the power that we are to experience from the source. But I'm not to grasp on the thing and to dissolve the thing with my awareness and experience in my awareness what the thing brings to me. Matter brings gifts to us, but we have to take the gift out of it, receive the gift out of it. Everything that physically exists is teaching us how to participate in creation. But we only know creation if we know our will. And we're trapped in a civilization that has taken away our will collectively over centuries. How? By taking away the power of the authority to create out of nothing. We've inherited a cultural world of things, and everything appears finished. Nature, culture, and we only see scarcity. And if we see scarcity, we have to say, this is mine, because there's not enough to share. But that's just our perception of the world. The world remains in beginning. Everything still is connected to the source, everything. Even the toxic waste is still connected to the source. But we are the ones who have to make that toxic waste sacred again by extracting out of it our failures, our disappointments, our wounds, taking this stuff back and transforming it, putting it back into our willingness. Are we willing to take out of this world what we put into it? First gift is give the, give the world back to Genesis. <clears throat> give the world back to the gods. Our age is about giving this world back to spirit. To the degree that spirit could inhabit it again and bring back abundance. We cannot create abundance with things. There are no amount of things that will generate abundance. No amount of money will ever generate abundance. Abundance is connection to the source. And what it does, it allows us to evolve our own generosity to the future. There is one word in our cultural age that is so powerful that only 12 people, at least 12, use it and understand it and exercise the power of this one word. And that word is fiat. You will know the word fiat. It means to speak something into existence. In the books of Genesis, God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's fiat. And we've always asked, how is money created? 
And some of us, some years ago, sitting in conversation about the exploration of futures of money, and this question was asked, what, how is money created? And people talk about all the mechanisms and the trades, and, and we said, no, only a few people have the authority to say, let there be money. Does that work? Let there be money. And it's created. And everyone else of us have to work, steal or borrow, to get the money. We don't have the power in our speech to say, let there be money. And it comes into being. Now, it, this is a thing. As much as we want to change the world, we don't want to accept that to be true. You know, I've heard economists saying, that's not true. And I said, go trace the source of your money, and you will come to find the people who don't need money. Their word is so powerful that they don't use money for anything. They don't see the need for money. They see the need for us to remain unconscious about the source of money. If we remain unconscious about the source of money, we will be in debt all the rest of our life. We will be so disempowered that no agreement can change the conditions of our world. Because this one thing controls our global reality. But it's taken from the idea of the gods who have the authority to say let there be something and it's created out of nothing. Money is our collective belief that someone else's word has more power over our lives and future. That we reassign our will to live in that existence without questioning the source of that authority. First gift is for us to recover our will and the word and the agreements of that power to reassign our wealth back into our collective consciousness. It is not a thing. It is an inner decision that you are and I together represent the field in which the gods participate in creation and exercise their gift to our mutual love for our futures, that we no longer live with the dependency of something that is scarce. It is not a new system. It is not a new idea. It's actually an old idea that we are recovering. The power of language. The power of light. The power of love. The powers of mutual agreement. When a human relationship is formed, man and a woman, a child can come into the world. When a relationship is formed for love, futures can come into the world. 
it is not that we have to have a different idea. We have to have reverence for what a human being has in each of our lives. The kind of reverence that the story says. If the guest comes, God comes with them. If the child comes into the world, the future comes with them. If we speak the truth, light comes into the world again. And the truth is, we need each other to change the world, to heal the world. To bring abundance into the world. We don't need more money. We need each other's word. And then what happens? We begin to remember the power to participate in Genesis. Because the world is not finished. It will never be finished. It remains in beginning. And the beginning is it, the power of our intention. To utilize our will to contribute what the will can give, can give in our age, and do this great work. The U.S. Secret Service says this about the U.S. dollar and the U.S. economy and the U.S. empire, that the greatest risk to national security is not terrorism, is whether we believe the money is real or not. The greatest risk is whether we believe the money, the currency, is real or not. If we think it's not real, the empire collapses. This is the biggest national security threat of our age. Not nuclear war. Not terrorism but the global belief that someone else's authority has more power over our lives. And that's why we have to post the spirit in each of us. Regardless of what we have, we have to share it because that is our abundance. And if we have nothing, share that as well. I might maybe try to translate some of those things. <laughs> into other language because one thing to understand when you listen to Orland he's communicating on multiple levels simultaneously and even if your mind kind of follows the logic a little while and then then you don't understand for a while and then you come back and understand a little another piece on another level you're receiving a, um, the communication of the cadence and intonation, the voice and not the words, in other words. Um, the voice communicates more than the words. So don't worry if, if you lost the thread at certain points. One thing, I mean, there's like, I could probably almost take every sentence and, and talk a lot about each sentence that Orland said. Um, but one thing that's, that came to me so immersion in the money world as we know it and in the commodity economy and the economy of finished product 
tasks that require a tremendous amount of coordination of labor and specialization to produce. Immersion in that teaches us a false view of reality. It accustoms us to believing that the fundamental power of creation lies in authorities to whom we've given our power. So to re-enter the world of gift in a way is to take back that authority and to re-inhabit a world in which the creative power is freely available to everybody. In the, um, the Matrix, the, the world-destroying machine, creative power depends on how much control you have over other people and how much control you have over nature. So if you have, for example, a lot of fossil fuels uh, at, at your disposal, then you can create big things. You can knock down forests, you can level mountains, you can dig big pits in the ground. And if you have a lot of money, which is one way to exercise control over other people, then you can also um, accomplish big things. So that um, exporting of power to those who have this control sets us into competition with each other automatically and plunges us into a world of scarcity where everybody is striving to control more and then of course to prevent others from controlling you and life becomes as Rudolf Steiner put it a war of each against all and that's built into the that's that's kind of the implicit teaching of the money system and the economic system that we live in Orland also mentioned like these the, the finished products you know you like creation we're not we don't participate in the processes of creation of the things that surround us normally speaking and that's why um, I, I've always moved when Manish talks about the kind of participatory processes where people made the things that they used in, in India that is these older ways that convey a different teaching they convey that creativity is available to you in most places on earth until very recently everybody knew how to build a house everybody knew how to, how to create food Everybody knew everything, how to, how to make music, how to make song, how to make fun. Everything that was important to life was something that everyone had access to. But now we have a system where we are dependent on all of these things. And so that teaches us that we do not have access to the fundamental creative power. So thinking about uh, let there be light. We're thinking about the creative power of speech, um, which is available to everybody. You don't have to know how you're going to create the thing that is created through you. You don't have to have an instruction set, a formula, you know, a recipe for getting from point A to point B. But that doesn't mean that you can just say, let there be pink fluffy unicorn in this room. Hey, I said it, Orland, why isn't it there? 
it only works if you're speaking the truth. So when God said, let there be light, he was speaking the truth. So in order to create with the power of words, you have to become aware of what's true. And the truth is not something that we create. But we can perceive it. And what is happening here and what is pulling us together into the gift of all and many other gatherings is that we are all catching a glimpse of a truth. I call it the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. We have experiences in life that show us. I think I talked about this at the beginning. That feel real to us. And when we can speak those, describe those, tell those stories, we are generating a field that brings them into manifestation. Even if we don't know how to do it, even if it seems completely unrealistic and naive to say that such a thing can be, yet we know that it can be because we've seen it. And I would just uh, just finish with that the journey from the disempowered world of money back to our creative power, it's, it's a long journey. For me, at least, it doesn't happen like flipping a switch. And maybe every new step into that creative power brings up all the toxic waste that needs, needs attention. And maybe that's why each new step into that creative power is, is, is scary. Um, but we're just learning this, these new technologies that are actually very ancient technologies, like the capoeira. How do I say it? Capoeira. Capoeira. Every time I say it, it's getting worse. Capoeira. 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 Okay. Like we sense that this isn't this isn't just a show, a performance, but it's a living being. Capoeira. 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 is a living being that is maybe just the tip of the iceberg of an incredibly vast technology. Or the songs that Pat has been singing. These aren't an art piece. These are not a decoration on capitalism that, that we can appreciate native music or something like that. These are a profound creative technology. And there are many, many others like this. The technology of story. Um, Orland said, uh, Genesis is an ongoing process. So people in other cultures, in ancient cultures, understood that the reenactment of the creation myth keeps the world together. If you stop reenacting the creation myth, the world falls apart. So we're facing now a time where our creation myth is changing. And this is a good thing. And all of the rituals and reenactments and stories, cultural narratives, ideologies that are built on that creation myth, they are losing their power. And that's a good thing as well. And it plunges us into this exploratory space where we're attracted to things like the uh, capoeira and the, the, the music and all of these many people in this room are exploring these other technologies. So, um, we're, we're learning. 
and I'm, I'm so happy you introduced the word technology because we cannot deal with this age without understanding the technique, the technique to know, the way of knowing. So, so it, let us not take it for granted. Let us not just think of it as a thing. It is another way of knowing how to move energy from one plane of reality to another. There's simple technologies that transmit information the way that these phones and internet does. Who listens to them? How do they how how does technology work? Who hears that? Who when we think that we've lost the meaning of sound and light and all of that. The body remembers. This is ancient. We have become the technologists because not just of the age of making things, the age of what is in here. We transmit information from vast dis dis distances We've created a global age because of how we were born and what we were born with. We have not listened and accessed our own technology. The information, the way of knowing self. To understand the physics and the metaphysics of our own existence is part of our age. Because we will have to be able to transmit energies to activate this new vibrational field for our world. We can make solar, solar cells and all of these things, but solar cells exist in our mitochondria. Our cells of the body are solar cells. They store light. Magnetism, electricity. And we create auric fields to transmit <coughs> frequencies for each other's future. So the age, all these things could help us understand more about how to use ourselves, how to reimagine functions of an atom. And this is the powerful thing about it. Energy follows thought. If these little things here that do not think would have been programmed with the magnetism design, that can attract energy. And then we hear sound. Even hear a voice. Imagine if we can activate the more intelligent form of this. The future of these things are already here. The artificial intelligence is just a disembodiment of our own hope that something else will Help me be me. Right. It's not that the internet is going to save us by making us all one right. and unifying us. It's that it reminds us of a function that we need to recover. There's nothing that we'll ever create that's not already here as some, some form of energy. 
And so part of part of the exercise of getting in this conversation, I think, is to really give attention and intention to our well-being at a level in which our well-being not just give us fear and challenges and wounds out there to then figure out how I'm going to earn a living, but to really live from within and to put out into the world the future that's in me, in you. The technologies that have to be born out of self-knowledge. And so these does stimulate some, 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 uh, another kind of hope, another kind of what we're going to work on. Because thinking creates not just things, but beings. Human beings, and beings that allow us to share fields of conversations more accurately. And we, we owe each other that much as a kind of ritual. So, yes, let maybe we invite some of your thoughts. Uh, could you give us some examples of collective wealth or common wealth which uh, has been commoditized? Uh, because I think there is a trap For example, uh, thinking on, especially in Europe, on health services or education services, which many people stick to them because uh, they are public and they are free, uh, but they actually have destroyed a lot of uh, collective wisdom and wealth and have turned into a commodity which is free, but it is a commodity that someone else uh, eats it. So could you uh, articulate a bit on those uh, big Things that we, can, we have turned into commodities, or in your opinion? The, con the questions about the conversion of wealth, social wealth, into commodities. Um, so, for example, the culture of mutual aid gets converted into insurance. In that favela, no one has insurance. But if your house falls down or something, all your neighbors will come and help you build it again. So that's a ripe market for insurance products. Um, or another cultural wealth is uh, wise advice. And that can get converted into coaching or psychotherapy. So that's those are some examples. I, I would add the intellect, the, the capacity to think creatively if we aspire to a certain kind of knowledge and then we receive it. We think it's mine. We call it intellectual property. So whatever I'm thinking, we have a whole range of protections for my thinking. Well, The, the, the process of the have and have not in a certain way or not knowing is not so much, it's not a real thing. Not real, it's another belief that someone doesn't have something. It may not manifest the way that we expect it to manifest. Again, our perception only sees what we know. 
So we're constantly looking to reaffirm what I know in someone, in some place, in something. We have to not let perception be limited by self-knowledge. We have to trust that in that other person there is a process that is, even if it's at its weakest point, is still connected to the source. Honor the source in everyone and you will see that they know. See that they have. The relationship, however, must be the one in which if you know you know more or have more, it's your responsibility to give what you have. Not expect the person to have to meet your demands of reality. The, 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 the universe is turned towards saying, if you have, you give. If you give away everything, you get more of everything. Because the, the creative life is not to ask the person to prove that they want to know or want to have. They don't have to prove anything and should not have to prove anything. I want to add something important to this because often like this idea of, of you know, your poverty is caused by your poverty mentality and your scarcity mentality, that can become a way to um, preserve systems of power that say, you know, those poor people in Mexico, it's just because they're my right? They should just start to think in abundance. Well, if you are saying that to somebody, if you're saying your poverty is caused by your scarcity mentality, and you have more than them and you're not giving it to them, guess what? That means that you're in poverty mentality too. Otherwise, because if, if you weren't, if you were in full trust, you wouldn't need to control those things. So your participation in systems of exploitation colors that statement with a lie. Because if you really believed it, you'd be living it too. Orland, you mentioned about taking power back to the community, but then we make community. And I think if you take it one step further, it's always taking power back to yourself. And I find that, and giving that, of course, what I'm wondering is how do we get people to understand that empowerment and be safe to support that they can do that? And not kind of think, but I personally think that ego is a big thing in this, that, that I can demonstrate my status in being able to be empowered and giving that, as opposed to it not being an ego-based paradigm. Because we are stage-driven animals. How do we connect those two together without them being separate from each other? The ego-drivenness is necessary because we have to become the bearer of the will. We're not fully egoistic yet. You know, we're still limited in our definition of the ego. And it's like 
feeling myself, feeling my own suffering. That's what the ego feels now. The real ego feels other people's suffering. The real ego, the developed ego, feels someone else's suffering. They feel someone else's need, feels someone else's future and potential. And the real developed ego makes the sacrifice necessary for that person to fulfill their life. That is the status of development. And we have examples of that here in Mahatma Gandhi, we've heard examples of people whose mature ego can speak for the other, not for themselves. Reminds me of a, a little story that Mark Dubois told me at Finhorn. He's an environmentalist. And he spoke of this battle that they sit, that they waged to save a river from having a dam built on it. You know, pristine ecosystem is going to be flooded, and so they fought the dam every way that they could. Lawsuits, petitions, direct action, chaining themselves to the bulldozers, everything they, they did, and nothing worked. And they built the dam and they destroyed the river. And he said it was so painful that they could not bear to even see each other again after that defeat. So painful. But he said, you know, it was like, he said, that was the last dam built in America. And they felt, he feels like it had some connection. That, and yeah, I guess this is, I told the story at our, at our gathering that, that, that our failures are, are our prayers. Because it's like God is watching and saying, you say you want to stop dam building. You say you want to create a community. You say you want to scale gift up to the corporate realm. You say you want to do these beautiful things. Do you really mean it? You know, are you, are you, do you want that enough to do it in the face of obstacles? Do you want it enough to do it in the face of people telling you you're naive? Do you want it enough to do it in the face of the impossible? So our obstacles and our impossibilities that we face are a clarifying process that let us know that we're actually serious about that and let that which is beyond ourselves also know that we're serious about that. I was wondering if um, you might be able to speak to the role that the unconscious plays in us moving to a gift culture and a gift consciousness. We've inherited genetics, psychology, we've inherited our cultural framework, when we don't know what we've inherited, we can call that the unconscious. And it comes into function by the circumstances that we're in. And so part of this time, this age, is our collective unconscious. So I didn't make all the things that happen in the world. I inherit my existence and what I'm experiencing. But I also have to make conscious, why am I alive now? It's not, it's not an answer that you're going to get. It's a capacity that you're going to get. The capacity to become aware that there are things we don't know. 
And we don't know because we weren't taught. We don't know because we have to become it. We never, there are certain things we're not going to know before we become it. We're dealing with a very complex age of knowledge. We're still not going to get answers for a lot of things. And yet, we will solve things and resolve things and create that we didn't know was possible. The processes within the human life have spontaneous potential. It's not going to go a linear process of this leading to that leading to that. Sometimes we skip steps based on creative impulse, epigenesis. What we call our sub subconsciousness now is actually the very thing that is pulling us into not only conflict but also into harmonics, relationships of affinity. And so part of part of the of, uh, the, of the work when a conflict arises because of things something we don't know in ourselves or each other. It's an opportunity to go through it with conscious intention. Because that fire we call conflict is the alchemy of our age. Harmony through conflict. This is what Alice Bailey called it in her theory of knowledge. Harmony through conflict. Meaning that I have to choose a fire to transmute the, what we call our unconscious. And our psychology of our age calls it conflict. Other ages used to call it initiation. <laughs> Where they create the fire, create the difficulty, and throw us into it. And then we have to spontaneously create knowledge. But we don't have initiation in the formal we still, it's still going on, but it's informal. Meaning that at any moment we walk through the door and what? We're in our initiatory process. Because someone don't like you. <laughs> and the person that don't like you is the one who's actually bringing the knowledge of, because their unconscious is saying, do something. Because we don't have the knowers who love you enough to create the most difficult circumstances to put you into it. So if we don't have knowers who says, you know what, I love you enough, but swim. <laughs> you know, someone is going to challenge you. But this is, this is, our, this is for, for part of what we're saying, that, that is, we, we shouldn't avoid the conflict. When it's arising, we say the, the, the metaphysics says this fire leads to clarification of purpose, and and then we could re-engage, building a vessel of conversation space, a dialogue, and even certain way a relationship for transforming the enemy. And the, the enemy requires a relationship to transform it. The unconscious requires a relationship to transform. 
by ourselves, our unconscious is just asleep. Asleep. But it's someone else that wakes it up. And when, they're, when the unconscious is awake because of someone else, it's a potential space for development. Because that's what we left with in our current reality. This has been A New and Ancient Story with your host, me, Charles Eisenstein. This is entirely a gift-based podcast. By that I mean I never market to subscribers or withhold premium content for a price or do affiliate marketing or have advertising on my site, none of that. Instead, I rely on supporters. If you would like to support this work, you can subscribe at newandancientstory.net for a small monthly amount. Uh, You can also subscribe for free. Either way, you will be notified automatically every time a new podcast episode comes out. At the same site, you can also find archived episodes along with my blog, which is also called A New and Ancient Story. The rest of my work, essays, articles, books, videos, recordings, things like that, are mostly on my other site, charleseisenstein.net. So thank you very much for listening. I'll be with you again next time.